0: been continuing this uh, series this summer where we look at different themes in the Christian life, and this week we're going to talk about hope, and by hope, not some general sense of hope, some vague optimism that everything is going to be okay that's that's quite rampant, but rather a biblical hope, a hope that is rooted in faith. This theme of hope is throughout the Bible and hope biblical hope is a it's faith looking forward it's closely related to faith it's taking hold of something that is not yet that is still future and it's trusting in God's future promises to the degree that it changes the way that you live in here and the now that's what biblical hope is it looks a lot like waiting now in our culture we don't like to wait in our consumeristic culture, the mantra of our culture is, have it all now. You shouldn't have to wait on anything. And this is everywhere that we look. Our culture despises waiting, and I do too. About, about six years ago, whenever Ashley and I were uh, recently married, we were getting ready to move down to Orlando for seminary. And uh, this was 2005, and this was the the time that the market, the real estate market, was exploding everywhere. And we'd been married for about six months. And so as we're thinking about moving, we're thinking maybe we should buy a house. And we had a really wise couple that we really trusted. They were older than us. And they sat us down and they said, hey, listen, you know, don't feel like you got to go buy a house now. There's nothing wrong with renting. In fact, if you will do the hard things now, if you'll make the sacrifices now and just put off, Put off a little bit, all those things that you want. The reward later on is far worth it. So, so look ahead to that. Don't feel like you got to jump in. Well, that was wise. But then we got down to Orlando, and the voices were very different. In fact, the voices in Orlando were like, you're losing money as we speak. Every minute you don't buy a house, you're losing money. you got to get in this market. It's going crazy. It's easy money. There were people that had bought a home and in three years were selling their home for 200 dollars and $300,000 over what they had bought. The market was skyrocketing. Everybody believed it's not going to stop. There's no ceiling to this. It's just going to keep going. And so this is easy money. There were people that were buying homes and turning around in three months and selling them and making $30,000 for doing nothing. And that was the voices everywhere. That was the new wisdom. The new wisdom was, you can have it all now. Don't miss this window. Don't miss this opportunity. And so uh, we took this new wisdom, and we bought a condo. And after the first year, the worth of our condo had appreciated 25%. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh, man. Oh, this is going to be good. You know, wow, we're going to graduate seminary, and we're just going to be rich. I mean, we're... We're going to be able to go and have any kind of house that we want. I mean, wow, this is easy money. This is going to work out great. But then in the second year, something started to happen. The market started to tank. Homes started to be foreclosed on. People were all of a sudden upside down in their mortgages because the price of these homes was not real. It was inflated by the market. And so everybody was upside down, including us. And by the time we got ready to to graduate seminary and move on into this lucrative business called the pastorate, we could not sell our condo for even 75% of what we bought it for. So we are still property owners in Florida, which I'm not proud of. So... So there was a new wisdom, and one of the things that we learned is that the, the hard way up front is actually the easier way, and what seems easy at the moment, the quick fix, is actually the harder way in the long run. If you ever listen to Dave Ramsey, he's got this uh, great line he puts on the bottom of all of his pages in his books. It's a real good pithy saying. He's the, Dave Ramsey's like a financial planner, and he's kind of of the... The old school wisdom. Like you don't, you don't get things for free. And uh, he's got this, this line that he always uses and it says, If you're willing to live like nobody else now, later you'll be able to live like nobody else. And essentially what he's saying is, if you're willing to make the sacrifices now, nobody else is willing to make. Then later on, you'll be able to live like nobody else. It's just another way of putting delayed gratification. It's a way of him helping you to say, you've got to have a vision for the future. You've got to have a vision for a future reward. Because unless that future reward is real to you, then in the here and the now, you can't make the kind of sacrifices that you need to make. You can't do it. You're going to be too attached to what you see there. And so this isn't just a principle that works for finances. It's in fact a deeply biblical reality. It applies to all of the Christian life. That we are to be a people who have our eyes set not on the here and now, but on the future. But the problem is is that we as believers, especially in the American church, have such little hope in our future reward. We're not looking to our future reward. Instead, we tend to look more like the culture and say, You only live once, have it all now. And so we find ourselves running after the things of this world in the here and now, the things that the Scripture says is not going to last. And so our future vision is so small. So no wonder we tend to be so intoxicated with shopping or we tend to be so discontent with the things that we have. No wonder we're seeking significance in what we do and what we have, and we got to have more, 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 more house, a better job, all of these things. And no wonder we can't let go of our stuff. And no wonder we can't suffer. We can't live the kind of life that Christ has called us to live. And so if you don't have a hope, if you're not looking ahead to our hope, to what Christ is going to bring, our future inheritance. You're not going to be able to let go of your stuff. You're going to live for the things of this life. But what we're going to see in our passage is that the writer of Hebrews is saying, Guys, this world is passing away. It's not enduring. It's like a breath. it's gone like that. But what Christ is bringing for you is a future inheritance that far surpasses Anything that this life can offer. And so whenever you get that, you can live in a Jesus kind of way in this life. Letting go of your stuff. Laying down your life for the sake of others. And so we're going to see looking ahead to our future hope in Christ frees us to live a a cross-shaped life, suffering with Christ. That's what we're going to see in our passage. So let's jump in and take a look at what he's saying here. In verse 11, the writer of Hebrews is drawing a comparison between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant in Christ. And he begins to refer back to the Day of Atonement in the Old Covenant. And this is how it would work. The Day of Atonement was the one day out of the year in Israel's worship where the high priest would take a pure, spotless lamb And he would take it and he would sacrifice it as a substitute for the sins of the people. And so he would take the blood of the Lamb and he would walk into the Holy of Holies, as he's describing here, and he would sprinkle it out over the Ark of the Covenant. And in doing so, he would make atonement for the people. That is, he would make a sinful people Israel and a holy God at one with one another. That's what atonement means. And so the sacrificed animal became the substitute. And through its death, they were made holy before God. And in this comparison, he's showing the same thing happened for us through Christ. He's been repeating this over and over throughout the book of Hebrews. It's focusing in on this reality that Jesus is the Lamb of God, the one who came to take our place and through his shed blood to make us holy forever. That's what we talked about last week in justification. But then he points out something different here in the similarity between Jesus and the sacrifices that were made in the Old Covenant. He says, the bodies were burned outside the camp. That's what he says in verse 11. And then he says, and so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. What's he talking about? Well, because this this lamb was taking the place of the people The sin of the people was laid upon this animal. That's what it means to be a substitute. And because the curse was falling on this animal, the animal was to be banished outside of the city. That's what it meant to be banished outside the camp, outside the city. It meant that you were under curse. It meant that you were unclean. And so in taking this animal outside the city gate, it was symbolically removing the shame and the guilt from the people and the sacrifice would be taken out and it would be burned. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, Jesus did the same thing for us. You see the irony in it? Jesus, who came for His people Israel, the one who, to whom Jerusalem belongs, it was the city of David. He was the son of David coming to rule over His people. And He, the only innocent one who's ever lived, was rejected. The curse fell upon Him. Just like those animal substitutes, He was banished outside of the city. Outside of the city gate. He was thrown out like a piece of trash. All of the disgrace, all of the rejection, all of the curse that should have fell upon us, it fell upon Him. And so He was rejected so that we might be accepted before God. He bore disgrace so that before God we might be blameless in his sight and fully received by him. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, do you see what he did here? Not only did he shed his blood, but he bore in his body all of the shame of sin, all of the disgrace, and he was treated like a criminal. In fact, he was crucified outside the city gate with a method of execution that was so heinous it was forbidden even for Roman citizens. So the writer of Hebrews is drawing that comparison and saying, do you see that that makes you holy? But then in verse 13, he begins to draw out the implication of that. So here's how the logic works. Jesus did this for you, and now in him, you're holy. Now, verse 13, this is how we are to live. This is the implication for you. Look at what he says. Let us then go to him, outside the camp, bearing the disgrace that he bore. So you might expect him to say, Jesus has done it all, so you're free from persecution, from hardship, from suffering. You don't have to worry about that anymore. Jesus took it all. Just pursue your own happiness. You're free. He doesn't say that here. He says, because of what Jesus has done, and because you're united to him, let's go to him. Let's share in the sufferings that He shared in. Let's have fellowship with Him in what He's done. You see, union with Christ means that we share in all of His benefits, but also that we are to share in His sufferings, in the same life that He lived. And in doing so, we know fellowship with Him that goes deeper and deeper and deeper, sharing in the fellowship of His sufferings. The New Testament talks about this all the time. And Jesus himself taught, this is the way to follow me. This is where you find me, in dying to yourself, in becoming last. He said, in my kingdom, the first, those who exalt themselves and want to be first and want to be over everything, well, in my kingdom, they're last. But the last, those who go to the back of the line, that's first in my kingdom. You want to know what greatness is in my kingdom? It's not being served. It's not being exalted. It's laying down your life to serve others just like me. That's the Jesus way of dying to yourself daily, laying down your life for the sake of others, burdening yourself in relationship to others. Our life must be shaped by the cross The cross is what has set us free and made us holy, and it is also to be the pattern that shapes our life, that we would look like Him. The great German priest, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was martyred under Hitler the time of the Nazis, he said this, he said, Whenever Jesus calls a man to follow me, he bids him come and die. In other words, this is normal. This is what it's like, this Jesus way of bearing disgrace, of embracing suffering. Not that we search out suffering, but if you burden yourself in relationship with people, especially broken people, suffering will come. This is normal. For Jesus, first came the cross, then came the crown. First came His suffering, then came His glory. The same is true for us in the church is that now is the time of the cross. But our hope is looking ahead to the time that will be glory. The pattern is the same as with him. See, we tend to think, because of what Jesus has done, that means I'm free to do whatever I want to do. And so therefore, whenever suffering comes into our life, or difficulty and our hardship, we're absolutely paralyzed. Whenever difficulty comes, we're like, what is going on here? This injustice that I'm suffering, somebody's going to pay. I'm calling my lawyer immediately. Whenever Jesus said things like, love your enemy as yourself, if somebody strikes you on the right cheek, which if you just think about that image, somebody strikes you on the right cheek, it's a backslap. It's an insult. And he says, If somebody brings this insult and injury to you, offer them the other. In other words, respond to injustice with mercy and love. But yet whenever it comes into our life, we say, what's going on here? Why am I suffering? I must have done something wrong. I must have stepped in something. Following Jesus is not supposed to be this way. But what the writer of Hebrews is saying is like, this is what is normal in following Jesus. This is the Jesus way. Because whenever you bear disgrace, embrace suffering, and lower yourself, that's where you find Jesus. And he says, let us go to him and share in his sufferings. So, if anybody's ever tried to do that, you know it's really easy, right? No, everything in us resists this. Everything in our flesh is resisting this. So how do you do this? How do you follow Jesus in this radical kind of way of laying down your life? Well, I think he talks about it right here in verse 14. So, he, so what he's done is he's laid out how we're to respond to what Christ has done for us, and then he talks about how we can do that. Verse 14 begins with the conjunction for, which for and because and those kind of words show you This is the reason. This is the how. And he says, For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. The writer of Hebrews is saying, this is how you can do it. This life is not enduring. This city that you just got kicked out of, in fact, literally, they had just been kicked out of Jerusalem for embracing Jesus. But even more broadly speaking, it represents this world. He says, this world and the things of this world and what you have in this world, it's fleeting, it's fading, it's over in just a moment. But we're not living for this world. We're living for a city that is to come. And what's he talking about? What city to come is he talking about? Well, he's referring to that great picture at the end of the book of Revelation. Revelation. This great picture of the climax of all of history. In fact, everything has been moving to this moment in Revelation 21 whenever the city of God comes down to this earth. That is our hope. It's the new earth. It's resurrection. It's not floating away to heaven sitting on clouds and playing harps and singing in a choir forever. That sounds a lot more like the other place to me than heaven. That's not our end hope, our end reward. The city to come is the heavenly Jerusalem that at the end of Revelation comes down out of heaven whenever, whenever heaven and earth become one. The way it's described as the heavenly Jerusalem is described as a, as a bride adorned for her husband. And the marriage is talking about is the marriage between heaven and earth. So the hope. The great Christian hope that we are looking for is deeply physical. It's resurrection. It's our bodies being raised like Jesus' resurrection body. A deeply physical dwelling with Christ forever in the new earth, the new creation. That's been the goal that all of history has been moving towards. In the story of creation in Genesis, whenever God's good creation went south, God didn't say... Well, let's do plan B. Let's throw this whole thing away. No, he said, I'm going to redeem this earth and make it brand new. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, our hope is in that city. It's in that new earth. It's in our resurrection body where we will reign with Christ over the earth forever and ever and ever. This is our hope. This is the Christian hope. And the writer of Hebrews in chapter 11, talks about this is the hope that actually guided Abraham and Moses. It says about Abraham the way that he was able to leave his home and all that he had and to go to a land where he had no idea where he was going. The way that he was able to do that, to walk away from everything, because he, it says he was looking for a better country. He was able to leave his country because he was looking ahead to a better country. It says he was looking for a city a city that would belong to him, a city whose builder and architect is God. He was looking for the new Jerusalem. And because that hope was so big for him, it allowed him to walk away from everything. The same is true for Moses, it said. Moses, if you remember, was raised in the courts of Egypt, in the house of Pharaoh. He was raised as a prince. And so all the money and the power of this world was at his fingertips. But The writer of Hebrews said, Moses considered disgrace with with, uh, suffering mistreatment along with God's people as more valuable than the riches of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. And so Moses saw, with, with Egypt and this world, I can have everything. But in suffering with God's people, this future reward far outweighs anything that this life can offer. And because he was looking ahead to his reward, he walked away from it all. And he stood up to Pharaoh in all of his power. You see, our future hope changes the way that you live here and now. So for you, what's your hope in? Is your hope in this life, the things you have here and now, your happiness here and now, or is your hope fixed on a future reward? an inheritance, a future kingdom reigning with Christ. See, we tend to be so discontent and think, I've got to have it now. I've got to be happy now. And we're so discontent that we think, I've got to have a new house and I've got to have a new spouse and I cannot endure this. I cannot endure this difficult job. I cannot endure this difficult marriage. I've got to have a new one. I've got to find some way to relieve this and certainly... We can't live the kind of life that Christ has called us to live, to give ourselves away to others. You can't live that way unless your hope is future, his future reward. But Hebrews says, guys, this world is passing away, but do you see what is in store for you? The new earth, the resurrection reigning with Christ forever. You can let go of your stuff, Hebrews, because you're going to be rich. The Bible says we will inherit the earth. We're going to rule over the whole world. We're going to be rich. And so whenever you see that, you don't have to hold on to your stuff now. You can let go of it because it pales in comparison to what's coming. The mantra of the world is you only go around once. You only go around once, so live it up. Don't miss anything. Get everything now. But the Bible says that's not true at all. You go around twice. And the first one is like that. It's so quick. It's passing away. And the second one, well, it lasts forever. And what you do in the first one matters for what the second one is like for you forever. That's biblical hope. And so whenever you see that, whenever your hope and your joy is in the hope that awaits you, it allows you to meet Jesus and follow him in a life of suffering and laying down your life for others. Just as he says one chapter before, it was for the joy set before him that Christ endured the cross. He went to the cross knowing there is a reward waiting on me, a people, a kingdom, a new world. And that's what carried him to the cross. Nothing, I think, so vividly portrays this looking ahead and living for a future reward as the story of Christian martyrs throughout the centuries. And one story in particular, I think, just so captures this. In the early church, uh, particularly the first, second, and third centuries, uh, there was a series of persecutions that broke out in the Roman Empire against Christians. And here was the reason, here was the rub. For everyone in the Roman Empire, they were required to confess Caesar is Lord and to burn incense and worship to him. And that was a, not a problem for everyone else because they would just add him as another god onto their other lists. But for the Christians, this was a problem. Because you see, the core of being a Christian, is mean, it means that you confess this, Christ alone is Lord and there is no other. And so this was a problem. And so because the Christians would not confess Christ, would not confess Caesar, they began to persecute them, especially in the Roman Colosseum, which this was a, a big amphitheater, kind of like a big football stadium. And they would have the gladiator games there. It was entertainment for the people. But from time to time, they would bring Christians in and they would expose them to every kind of persecution and torture, beatings, whippings. They would drag them behind chariots. They would tie them to poles. They would set them on fire. They would throw them to wild beasts. Every kind of suffering that you could imagine and torture to try to get them to recount the name of Christ. And in particular, the story of this young slave woman named Blandina who suffered. And it was said that she suffered more than anyone else, more than any of the other Christians in the Colosseum. Her suffering went over went on and on for days. And the thing that stood out about her was her courage and her joy in Christ. And so the more that her tortures would press in upon her, the more that her resolve and her joy in Christ would come out. And it exhausted them. They were completely exhausted. At one point they hung her on a pole and told her to renounce Christ, renounce the shameful name of Christ. And she said, I am a Christian and we have nothing to be ashamed of. And, she, and her bold prayers would embolden all of her brothers and sisters enduring the same kind of persecutions. But finally, after a number of days, sensing the end was there, her executioners completely exhausted. They threw her to the wild beasts. And the thing that was described of her as she realizes the end is coming was that she walked towards the beasts. And it says she was rejoicing and singing at her departure as one who was headed to a wedding feast. How could she do that? How can somebody respond in that situation, facing imminent death with joy like that? Why would she walk towards the wild beasts in her certain death just like she was walking towards a wedding supper? It's because she was. That's exactly where she was headed to a wedding supper where she would be united with her groom, Jesus Christ, once and for all, physically, face to face. And because of that hope that was so real for her, she could defy the beasts and walk right towards them. So what kind of a community might, might we be like if our future hope became more and more real? If that's what we were looking to instead of the here and now? Eugene Peterson says the church is to be a colony of heaven in a country of death. It's a great way to put it, is that we are to be a community of people that live as though we belong to another world, that live in the here and now according to a whole different set of values, a whole different reality, that we live fully present, fully engaged in this life, but we live out the values of a coming kingdom That is, we live in such a way in which we lay down our lives for others. We love our enemies and bless them. We respond to injustice, not with cursing, but with forgiveness and mercy. And as we live out this kind of way, this kind of values of a coming kingdom, we bear witness to a future hope. To a world that's full of injustice and brokenness and death and violence, we are to be a community of people that's like a big signpost pointing people ahead to a future hope that says this life is going like that. But there is a kingdom that's coming, and it's going to be more physical and real than anything even beautiful in this world now. It's going to be a new earth, a paradise, where we're going to live forever. We're to be a people that, in the way that we live, bear witness to that future hope. And so would you... Hope no longer in the things of this life, in your name, in your reputation, in your stuff, but hope and live for the city that is to come. Let's pray together.